Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 129. This podcast is about then, what happened a hundred years ago during and after the war that changed the world. And it's also about now, how World War I is still present in our daily lives, how it's remembered and discussed and taught, but most importantly, World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy podcast, is about why and how we will never let the awareness of World War I fall back into the mists of obscurity. So join us as we explore the many facets of World War I, both then and now. This week on the show, first looking forward into this week a hundred years ago, the 4th of July, 1919, is memorable as America celebrates her birthday after having stepped out on the world stage. Looking back a week a hundred years ago, Mike Schuster takes us through those last moments and the reactions as Germany signs the Versailles Peace Treaty. Then, curator for The Right Blog, Dr. Jennifer Orth-Veillon, joins us to talk about this popular blog about the effects of World War I on literature and writing. We also have a report for you on a recent Supreme Court ruling that has powerful implications to World War I memorials around the country. And more, all this week on World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast, brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, the Star Foundation, and the Doughboy Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. America entered the 20th century as a proud, spirited, but fairly isolated, humble agrarian nation with a tiny standing army made up mostly of local militias assigned protective duties for natural disasters, lawlessness, and occasional local disputes. Along came our involvement in World War I, and in a very short span, between April of 1917 and November of 1918, just over 19 months, a mere 585 days, the nation transformed in unimaginable ways. As a part of that was how people saw the United States and how the people of the United States saw themselves. So this week, a hundred years ago, America celebrates the 4th of July, Independence Day, imbued with this new vision. Now with that as a setup, we're going to jump into our centennial time machine and go back a hundred years to explore the 4th of July, 1919, in a special report prepared by podcast researcher and writer, David Kramer. The 4th of July, Independence Day, 1919. This promises to be an even greater celebration than usual. For many veterans, it'll be the first holiday home since the armistice. And communities from coast to coast are making big plans to honor these local heroes. For the veterans of trenches, machine guns, and gas, deadly shells bursting will be replaced by the harmless but raucous sound of fireworks exploding overhead. Fireworks will dominate the night while ceremonies, music, and parades rule the day. 
In cities and towns, veterans will be the stars, appearing in parades, receiving medals and other honors, and properly welcomed home in grand style. And in most places, there'll also be quiet memorial events to honor the fallen who didn't come home. Let's take you on a tour around the country. The Hope Pioneer newspaper in Steele County, North Dakota, reports that the welcome includes a parade honoring the local soldiers, but the celebration puts the men to work as well. They perform army maneuvers, drills, and dress parades. According to the newspaper, two solid hours of the real army game. Doubtlessly, just what those guys were looking forward to. Berkeley and Oakland, California, are perhaps more in tune with what the returning troops are looking for. Barbecue, music, sports programs, and literary exercises? Well, that's quite a mix for the 2,500 returning veterans who will be celebrating that day. It's certain that they won't go hungry, as 3,200 pounds of beef will be barbecued before the fireworks begin. Up the West Coast in Seattle, there'll be baseball, parades, concerts, but the Seattle Star states that the celebration will have a more reverential tone in honor of the recent peace treaty. Although reverential doesn't mean they're not going to eliminate dancing in the streets from the schedule. Across the country, Rockingham, North Carolina began planning in May for the big event, with a front page article urging business owners to financially support the event to make it the most spectacular fourth ever. Quote, well worthy of our boys who've been in the service of our country. That means you, Mr. Businessman. No pressure, right? Not to be outdone by anyone. St. Johnbury, Vermont announces, quote, the greatest occasion of its kind ever offered in St. Johnsbury. They not only mean to thank the soldiers and sailors of that region, but they also mean to express gratitude that so many returned home alive. On the 4th of July, everything is free to these returning servicemen. Meals and concerts and movies and everything. And of course, they'll be the guests of honor in the morning parade. In Washington, D.C., it'll be an international celebration, paying tribute not only to the birth of our nation in 1776, but also celebrating the fight for freedom in World War I, a freedom confirmed in the past week by the signing of the Treaty of Versailles by Germany. Diplomats from allied embassies will join in parades on elaborate floats representing their nations, all expressing the parade's theme, the world at peace. It's planned that these floats will later be shipped to New York City and perhaps Chicago for public display. It's an especially meaningful day for Polish Americans, 300 of whom will march in native costumes to celebrate the existence of an independent Poland for the first time in 150 years. Servicemen from Washington, D.C. themselves receive medals on the ground of the Washington Monument, followed by numerous band concerts. Almost 15,000 D.C. area residents will participate in patriotic pageants staged at parks and government buildings around the city, including the grand finale on the steps of the Capitol. Unfortunately, earlier plans for President Wilson and French Marshal Foch to share the reviewing stand were foiled by the lengthy peace process. President Wilson is still on his return trip from France aboard the USS George Washington. Think of that ship as Wilson's version of Air Force One. Anyway, he plans to transmit a wireless address to the nation from the ship 
which can be read and published across the country on the holiday. Meanwhile, the war and the peace are not the only themes in America this day. In Toledo, Ohio, in a sweltering 110-degree heat wave, two men battle it out for the World Boxing Championship. It's an epic battle between four-time champ Jess Willard and upcoming challenger the Manasseh Mauler, the most famous boxer of the era, heavyweight Jack Dempsey. This is the day Dempsey wins the crown and holds the title for the next seven years, until 1926. And that's how it was, a hundred years ago this week, on the 4th of July, in the aftermath of the war that changed the world. Just days earlier from the 4th of July, a hundred years ago, on the 28th of June, 1919, after a really tense ending, Germany capitulates and signs the peace treaty at Versailles near Paris, ending the war with Germany. In his post this week, Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog, takes us through those last moments and the reaction, including on the German home front, to the signing. It's a great post, Mike. Thank you, Teo. So our headline reads, Extra, extra, the Germans capitulate. Reluctantly, they sign the treaty. Paris celebrates in Berlin the terrible cold of abandonment. And this is news from the Great War Project. In Germany, by these days, a century ago, the political situation is chaotic. So reports historian Margaret McMillan. The coalition government was deeply divided over whether to sign the treaty. Political leaders in the West along the Allied invasion route were for peace at all costs, as were the premiers of most of the German states who saw themselves having to make separate treaties with the victors. The nationalists talked bravely of defiance without making any useful suggestions about how to put it into practice. Among the military, wild schemes circulated, Macmillan reports, to set up a new state in the East, which would be a fortress against the Allies, to have a mass revolt against the government, or to assassinate the leading advocate of signing. There are strong possibilities on all sides. Plunder and murder will be the order of the day, Macmillan reports. And Germany will break up into a crazy patchwork quilt of states, some under Bolshevik rule, others under right-wing dictatorships. The sentiment is strong, though. Germany must sign. But others resist signing because they believe without evidence that the Allies are bluffing. That logic is compelling. The Allies don't want to occupy Germany. That costs too much. Therefore, they are bound to make concessions if only Germany stands firm. German military and political leaders respond. The German cabinet is deadlocked and resigns. Germany now has no government and no spokesman. The deadline drifts ever closer. In Paris, the peacemakers wait tensely for the final German word, writes Macmillan. At about 4.30 in the afternoon a century ago, a secretary rushed into the Council of Four to say that the German reply was on its way. I am counting the minutes, the French PM Clemenceau says. The German note arrives at 5.40 in the afternoon. Macmillan describes the scene. The statesmen crowd around as a French officer translates to German. Lloyd George breaks into a smile. Wilson grins. No more work was done at the peace conference that day. The signing ceremony is rife with symbolic significance. 
It takes place on June 28th, a century ago, the precise anniversary of the assassination of the Archduke and his wife in Sarajevo in 1914, the act that actually started the war. The signing of the peace treaty takes place in the Palace of Versailles in the room called the Hall of Mirrors, where, reports Macmillan, the German Empire had been proclaimed in 1871. The audience, she reports, at first watched in respectful silence, but soon noise overtakes the room. Then the key peacemakers and the Germans appeared. The treaty was signed. Wilson left that night, according to Macmillan, first by train to the French coast, then by ship to the United States. While Paris rejoiced, Macmillan reports, Germany mourned. Even good socialists now talked of a piece of shame. The news of the signing was heard like a thunderclap. We shivered, one German is quoted as saying, from the terrible cold of abandonment. And that's news these days from the Great War Project. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. And if you've been following Mike's months-long and powerful series on the events at the Paris Peace Conference, I also want to point you to last week's episode number 128, where Mike's series stimulated us to gather a powerhouse panel of historians, authors, and citizen historians to explore, question, and try to make sense out of the Versailles Treaty with Germany. Now, if you haven't had a chance to listen to this one-subject episode, go to www.cc.org forward slash cn and take a listen to episode 128. All the links are in the podcast notes. Now, with that, we're going to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. During this part of the podcast, we explore how World War I has been and is being remembered and commemorated in the present. So much has happened during this World War I centennial period. And as the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was reaching its stride in organizing the centennial of World War I, we started to explore and question the common perceptions of World War I. We realized that Common references like the Forgotten War or the Great War were anachronistic. These were no longer fit descriptions. After all, people were beginning to remember World War I all over. And the Great War was a term that was assigned before an even larger global conflict followed. So as the centennial was shedding a new light on the subject, a new reference was suggested to us by one of our wonderful communication advisors, Robert Lenz, an ad industry legend. He suggested that we begin to refer to World War I as, quote, the war that changed the world. Now, words are powerful. And as we started to live with this new reference, it acted as a catalyst, causing a new perspective and reexamination of how World War I changed the world. All of that leads us to today's interview with Dr. Jennifer Orthveillon, who has masterfully curated a very special section of our website since December of 2016 called The Right Blog. That's W-W-R-I-T-E. The blog is self-described as exploring World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship and has earned a loyal following of over 30,000 avid readers. 
Dr. Orthéon holds a PhD in comparative literature from Emory University, lives in France, and besides her own contribution, has pulled together thoughtful, interesting, and provocative articles from a who's who of thinkers and writers to help us understand how the war that changed the world changed the nature of literature, art, and film in the 20th and 21st centuries. Jennifer, it's not only a pleasure to have you on the show, but it's also been my pleasure and privilege to work with you over these past two and a half years. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Theo. And it's also been a pleasure to work with you and with the other members of the commission. Well, let me start with you. How did you personally develop your interest in World War I's influence on contemporary writing? And how did you come into the subject? There were several veterans in my colleagues' classes that were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And there was a push to take care of them. I decided that I would open this veteran group. And the reason I did this is because one of my specialties in my research is war literature and also veteran memoirs. And so in my classes, my students began these classes by studying the literature of World War I because it was one of the major conflicts that happened on foreign soil. Also, I said to my students that World War I marked a break with many traditional war narratives at the time. So before World War I, a lot of the narratives that came out of wars were communicating much more a sense of patriotism, triumph, sacrifice, and the soldiers fought bravely, didn't complain, was heroic. And the idea was that the weak soldier who had thoughts that were not as patriotic about the war was seen automatically as sort of a coward or a criminal. And while all of these things, patriotism, triumph, and heroic sacrifice are certainly important aspects of the combat experience, they don't paint really a complete portrait of the long-lasting effects of war on soldiers, on families, and on the community. For example, Hemingway's sparse prose or Wilford Owen's grotesque images and irony did something revolutionary in terms of reading about war, learning about war. But I left the U.S., but I knew I couldn't leave my work entirely behind. So I would spend many of my days driving from village to village, looking for work and also looking for writer communities. And I didn't find either. <laughs> it was winter. However, each town center in France features a monument to the World War I dead. And what I learned that, even if the monument was small, the place's loss was enormous. I would often get out of my car and count the number of dead and then go to the village municipality to see what the population count was in 1914-1918. And one village lost 9% of its population. And that's enormous. Another lost almost all of its young men. And also in France, November 11th isn't just Veterans Day, but it's really just it's Armistice Day. It's commemorating most notably World War I. World War I shaped the worldview, as you mentioned, of a lot of well-known names and writers. A lot of people don't actually necessarily associate those with World War I, but can you list out some of them? I mean, you mentioned Hemingway, but there are many others. Well, I think there are a lot of writers, for example, that are not as well-known. I mean, Hemingway and Owen and Sassoon are very well-known, and I think we do actually associate them with World War I. However, there are a lot of writers that no one knows about being in World War I or writers who wrote later on and who referred back to World War I as their influence. I wrote an article about Abba Camus. He's associated with writing about World War II, mostly. And he always referred back to his father's service in World War I as sort of a pivotal point of his understanding of France as a country that he would always protect as well. Also, we had a post by a writer, David Gillum, who published a book this year on Anne Frank. I noticed something in the book when I was reading it, that there was this moment when Anne Frank was arrested. And usually the custom in Amsterdam at the time was to not really give the family much notice and sort of kick them out of the door. But because the arresting officer saw that Otto Frank, Anne's father, was a World War I veteran, he gave them extra time to get their things together. 
Really interesting. From a broad view, from 10,000 feet up, is it possible to summarize some of the period's biggest influences on literature, film, and writing? And I know we've actually talked about some of it, and I think you mentioned it early on. Perhaps one of the biggest influences is that war is no longer as glorified. Right. And that was really the biggest contribution in writing for World War I. The idea that there was a space for writing about war in a way that hadn't been really written, or at least written and seen before, or published, or become something that everyone was reading. And I think all of those works by the iconic writers like Owen and Hemingway and Sassoon, they forced us to look at war in its entirety as something that was great sacrifice and that was full of heroism and things like that, but also a war that was grotesque. And as the French refer to it, the butchery. To sort of be able to see that, like Ellen Lamott, Mary Borden, two nurses who wrote about them, their writing was even censored post-World War I because it was considered too graphic. Not things that people wanted to see women, especially nurses, writing about. Nurses were supposed to care for the dead. They were supposed to have a sense of moral duty. They weren't supposed to write about the things that they saw, the horrific things that they encountered at a really gory level of detail. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the contributors to the blog. I have a couple of observations, and actually you answered one of my questions, which was, you really curate a post from a lot of Gulf War veterans who are now writing. Tell us a little bit about how their war experience caused them to look at World War I's influence, and on writers specifically. Well, I think there are several things. First of all, there's kind of a geopolitical element to it, which is how Europe was divided up and sort of passed around and dealt with after World War I led to a lot of the conflicts that have led the United States into war in the Middle East today. For example, the way that the Ottoman Empire was divided up, the different mandates, the British mandates, the French mandates, kind of all created tensions in that area. And that was because of the way it was carved up after the war. And so I think there's a recognition of the origin of why they were there in the 1990s, in in the 2000s, long after World War I. Even one contributor, Benjamin Bush, he wrote about finding a World War I cemetery, British cemetery, while in Iraq that had kind of been destroyed and he worked on cleaning it up. Another thing is that a lot of the soldiers coming back who decided to write kind of always starts with World War I. It's kind of when you learn to write about war, World War I becomes this reference point. When my students and I taught this class on war memoirs and they all asked several veterans, Seth Brady Tucker, Brian Kastner, Kayla Williams, what was the greatest influence in their writing? And they all said Wilfred Owen, Hemingway, basically because of this sort of much more open way of writing about war. You also had some women veterans who are part of that group. Yes. Those were really, really exciting for me because it was really thrilling to have not only contributors who wrote about women who played very important roles in World War I, but it was also really interesting to see contemporary women veterans looking back at World War I as a major influence on them. So it wasn't just the male experience, but also that women today who are in war, they are also looking at this experience of the soldier of World War I as their own, and not really one of gender, but as a human experience. I'm not sure the exact count of the posts, but I think there's around 150 of them. I want to point out to our listeners that these aren't dashed off little blurbs, you know. Each post is a deeply considered treatment of the subject brought to us by really great writers. Jennifer, were there any surprises for you? Does anything stand out for you in the blog that you didn't expect and maybe hadn't thought of before it showed up? Yes, I was very 
surprised and very pleased by the response I got from writers who volunteered to write. And I say volunteer because these are paid writers. They get paid to write articles in places like the New York Times or the Atlantic. And they wrote this for World War One because they thought it was a good thing to do. And I think that was what floored me the most. And so that just for me shows the importance of commemorating this memory, conserving this memory. Well, one last question for you, Jennifer. What are the top one or two things our listeners should take away and remember about the war that changed the world and how it changed contemporary literature and writing? I think the biggest thing is that World War I, the writing is much deeper than Hemingway and Sassoon and Owen, much, much deeper. And also one thing that I think listeners should remember is that Hemingway and Owen portrayed one version of the war, but there are a lot of other ways to look at the war. I mean, while they were kind of disillusioned, there are other writers who saw this as fulfilling their cause, and we see less of that. Uh, less of that literature is appreciated. We also have accounts from women. Cynthia Wachtel wrote a post about how Hemingway was probably influenced by this nurse, Ellen Lamott. So the fact is that the war is composed of many, 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 many different voices from different countries, from different walks of life, and they should all be read to have a more complete understanding of this war. Well, thank you, Jennifer. We're going to encourage people to look at the posts, and I know how hard you've worked for the last two and a half years doing this, and it really is a worthy effort. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Jennifer orth is a Franco-American writer, researcher, and translator who works on war, literature, and memory in her research, fiction, and nonfiction work. Jennifer developed and curated the Right Blog for the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission from December of 2016 through June of 2019. We thank her and the many contributors to the blog for their important contribution to documenting, exploring, and discovering the effects of World War I on contemporary literature and scholarly writing. This wonderful resource is available at www.cc.org forward slash W-W-R-I-T-E. That's all lowercase or just follow the link in the podcast notes. For Remembering Veterans, we have a story of a recent Supreme Court ruling that's very connected to World War I and honoring our veterans. Since July of 1925, a 40-foot-tall cross-shaped monument has towered over a state highway, honoring 45 area men who gave their lives in World War I. This is the Peace Cross in Bladensburg, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. But in recent years, its future was in doubt. You see, the highway that connects Washington and Annapolis grew wider over the years, eventually splitting around the cross, which now stands in the center of a traffic circle. This is a very visible location with vast daily drive-by traffic. Now, this is where it gets a little complicated and convoluted. You see, the same land was originally owned by the town of Bladensburg. The town donated the plot to the local American Legion post, who took on the task of raising the money and completing the memorial, which they did. Now, speaking at the dedication of the memorial on July 12th in 1925, Navy Secretary Josephus Daniels spoke to the men who had faced, quote, every duty expected, and at the dedication he said the memorial was, quote, a cross that will stand for time and eternity like the principles these men defended. And it seemed that it would. However, the ownership of the land reverted to the state in 1956. 
I'm not sure of the details, but it was probably an eminent domain sale issue in the building of the highway. In any case, since the lands transferred to the state of Maryland, the state has paid all expenses for the maintenance of the memorial and the grounds. And therein lies the rub. Enter the American Humanist Association, a nonprofit organization founded in 1941 that promotes and advances a concept called secular humanism, a philosophy that seeks to remove all symbols of theism or deity worship from daily life. So, in the name of defending the constitutional right of secular and religious minorities, the American Humanist Association is dedicated to the removal of religious symbols from government land. In 2012, they targeted the Bladensburg Memorial Cross as a religious symbol. So they took the state of Maryland to federal court, claiming that the memorial in the shape of a cross, quote, discriminates against patriotic soldiers that are not Christians, and that it promotes government support for a specific religion. Now, they lost the first round in court, but they won the appeal, and the state was told to destroy the cross, remove it, or transfer the land to a non-governmental entity. Defenders of the Peace Cross then appealed to the United States Supreme Court. This is a pretty big deal. Consider this. If the appeals court ruling against the cross were upheld, the repercussions would be extreme. Memorials with religious symbols on other governmental lands would have to go. Think of the chaos in Arlington National Cemetery alone. And the status of local memorials like the Peace Cross throughout the United States would be in jeopardy. It's been a real nail-biter and a huge issue for World War I memorials and veteran cemeteries around the country. Last week, a decision came down. The Supreme Court justices ruled 7-2 that the cross could remain on state land. But here's the kicker. The court was not actually in agreement. They all had different reasons behind their decisions. For example... Justice Samuel Alito said that the cross was a, quote, place for the community to gather and honor all veterans and their sacrifice for our nation. He went on to say, quote, destroying or defacing the cross that has stood undisturbed for nearly a century would not be neutral and would not further the ideals of respect and tolerance embodied in the First Amendment, unquote. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the two dissenting votes said, Just as the Star of David is not suitable to honor Christians who died serving their country, so a cross is not suitable to honor those of other faiths who died defending their nation. Soldiers of all faiths are united by their love of country, but they are not united by the cross. Justices Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan eased the concerns of communities with similar memorials, but left uncertainty for anyone who seeks to build a similar new memorial on government lands in the future. They stated that it is unlikely that the law allows a newer memorial erected under different circumstances. Legal analysts say that this ruling still makes it unclear how the justices will rule on future cases of a similar nature. But for now, historic and World War I memorials in the shape of a cross appear safe. And that brings us to Articles and Posts, where we select stories that you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. 
The dispatch points to online articles with summary paragraphs and links providing a rich resource to World War I news and activities. Here are some selections from the current issue. The first story. Treaty of Versailles Centennial Event in France will benefit construction of new National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. On June 28th, in honor of the centennial anniversary of the Treaty of Versailles, a day of remembrance, commemoration, and education took place at the legendary Palace of Versailles in France, the site of the signing of the Paris Peace Treaty. The signing officially ended the state of war between the European Allied Nations and Germany. The presenting sponsor of the events was the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and other sponsors included the National World War I Museum and Memorial from Kansas City and the Doughboy Foundation. The next story, GI Bill. One of the nation's most transformational pieces of legislation, the GI Bill of Rights, turned 75 last week. The impetus for the GI Bill grew out of the World War I U.S. Navy experience of Ernest McFarland of Arizona. McFarland served as governor of Arizona and the chief justice of the Arizona Supreme Court, but his most impactful public service was as a United States senator when he introduced the GI Bill of 1944. The headline of the next story, I truly cared about those who served and wanted to make that known. Eagle Scout service projects are supposed to be challenging, but Aidan Coleman was more ambitious than most. His project? Erect a World War I memorial in his Indiana hometown to honor those locals who served in World War I. Aidan notes that, quote, well, my troop leaders weren't so enthusiastic. I, I think they thought that it might be too ambitious. And in some ways, they were right. But Aiden overcame the challenges of researching the local World War I veterans and raising the needed funds, and the new memorial was dedicated on Armistice Day in 2018. Go, Aiden! Now, here's an interesting story. National World War I Museum and Memorial offers exclusive video and images to mark Centennial of 1919 Inter-Allied Games. The scheduled Olympics in 1916 were canceled due to World War I. While the Olympics resumed in 1920, a seminal event featuring renowned athletes from across the world took place in 1919 in the aftermath of the first truly global conflict in human history. Held from June 22nd to July 6, 1919, outside of Paris, near the site of the 1900 Olympics, the Inter-Allied Games featured hundreds of male athletes from nations across the world aligned with the Allies during World War I, competing in 13 sports. During the course of the competition, more than 500,000 spectators witnessed some of the globe's best athletes, past, present, and future. UK service marks a hundred years since Scapa Flow Navy scuttling after World War I. A poignant service was held in Scotland to commemorate the centenary of the scuttling of the German high seas fleet in Scapa Flow in 1919. On the 21st of June 1919, German Navy commanders scuttled more than 50 German ships in the waters off Orkney to prevent them becoming, quote, spoils of war. A service was held above the sunken wreck of the warship Dresden. During the service, a bell recovered from the wreck of the Fondatan was rung by the grandson of German commander 
Admiral Ludwig von Reuter. The Story of Ava Crowell When Mary Fritz noticed three log-shaped monuments in Lyons, Nebraska, with World War I and the same last name, Crowell, on each of them, she took a closer look. One inscription read, Ava Kroll, World War I nurse. Now, being the only woman from Lyons to serve in World War I, I wanted to learn her story, Fitz recounted. Access the full-length version of all these amazing stories and more through the summary paragraphs and links that you'll find in our weekly dispatch newsletter. It's our short and easy guide to lots of World War I news and information. Subscribe to this wonderful free weekly guide at www.1cc.org forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that wraps up episode number 129 of the award-winning World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests, talented crew, and supporters. This week, we were joined by Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, and Jennifer Orth-Veillon, curator for the Wright blog. Thanks to Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team, Katz Laszlo, the line producer for the show, David Kramer for his special reports, J.L. Michaud for research and web support, and I'm Teo Mayer, your producer and host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs have been to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We've brought the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators, their classrooms, and the public. We've helped to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country, and yet to be completed, the Commission will build America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as our other sponsors, the Star Foundation and the Doughboy Foundation. World War I Centennial News, the Doughboy Podcast, and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org forward slash CN. That's Charlie Nancy. You'll find the Doughboy Podcast in all the places that you get your podcasts, even on YouTube, asking Siri, or using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget... You can help keep the story alive for America by contributing to the memorial which will stand to tell the story for generations to come. Just text the letters WWI or WW1 to the phone number 4th of July. So long.